We are a church planting church, and one of the churches that we planted was in Upper Manhattan, the Everyday Christian Church. The lead minister there is Chris Travis, and Chris wrote me this week with a prayer request. As you could imagine, in New York City, uh, property is uh, extremely expensive. They currently rent a space from a local school, and their community and the local school loves having them there. But the New York City government recently uh, passed a ruling that they would no longer rent school space to churches. It was appealed, and that appeal is right now in front of the Supreme Court. They will decide by February 23rd whether or not they will hear that appeal. If they hear it, and if they decide in favor of churches, it will have national implications, and this issue will go away. If they choose not to hear it, it's a very good chance that churches that meet in schools in New York City will be told to leave, and it could spread across the country, and it could be devastating for church planting. So we're going to honor Chris's request right now, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me. So, Father... We are thankful that uh, we live in a land where we have so many religious freedoms. We don't take that for granted. We're thankful that we can have conferences like we've had recently and like the ones that are coming. And we do pray a blessing over the marriage conference and Gary Thomas and all that we hope you will do there. But Father, we also want to pray right now for our brothers and cities in New York City and across the country who are sometimes dealing with a spirit of opposition with the local governments. Now, we understand, Father, that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is Lord, and the church will survive regardless of what governments say or do. But we also know the Apostle Paul said that we should pray for the powers on earth, that we could live in harmony and peace with them, that their blessing on us could be, in fact, a blessing we give them and our cities. So we pray for favor on the churches and with the city governments. And we pray, in fact, that you will especially bless Everyday Christian Church and the good things they're doing in Manhattan. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, let's read about the very first church plant ever. Last time we saw that Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 people who woke up that morning never even imagining they would name the name of Jesus, got baptized. Well, what happened to them? Let's read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so last summer I got to take the trip of a lifetime and get some time in Europe with my wife and my daughter. And I took this picture on my phone. Does anyone recognize that structure? It's the well-known Eiffel Tower. Built in 1889. And the citizens of Paris hated it. It was built for an international exposition. And they insisted that when the exposition was over, it be torn down. 
But Alexander Gustav Eiffel believed in his creation. Believed it was destined for greatness. He believed that it would ultimately be vindicated. And he was right. The church of Jesus Christ has been mocked. It has been misunderstood. It has been marred. But Jesus has always believed in her. And in her ultimate vindication. He told his disciples in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus believed in the genius and in the future of the church, maybe more than we do. Because Jesus understood the church is what God intended. You see, Jesus wasn't sent just to promote spirituality. He was sent to create a new society. And that's why he didn't say, I will build a bunch of Christians. He said, I will build my church. And I think that's important to remember because all you have to do is get on the internet, and it's very popular in blog world these days, to critique and criticize and be cynical of the church. It's very common to hear, I love Jesus, I just can't stand the church. Well, if you love Jesus, you can't say that because Jesus loves the church. He came to build, he came to die for, he's coming to claim the church. You cannot love Jesus and have contempt for his bride. And when the Bible says that Jesus loves the church, it's not talking about the perfect church. Because there's never been a perfect church. The word church is used three ways in your Bible. It's used to describe the universal body of Christ all over the world. It's used to describe all the Christians that meet in a city, like the church in Rome, the church in Philippi. And by the way, there's just one church in Fort Worth. And it's also used to describe a subset of Christians that meet in a city in a specific place, like greet the church that meets in their home. But it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the global community of Christians, if you're talking about all the Christians in a city, or if you're just talking about the Christians that meet in one specific place like this. No matter how you use the word, the church has always been flawed and forgiven. And used by God for His global agenda. Because the church does not just make God look good. The church makes God look smart. And in one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, in Ephesians 3, Paul says, God's purpose, another translation says, God's intent... In other words, this is what God has always intended, is that in all this to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities, you realize God's using us right now to display his wisdom to beings we can't even see. They're in the heavenly realms. And this was his eternal plan. 
which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. So something big is going on here, bigger than we realize. It's like when you read the book of Job. Job does not realize all the cosmic dimension of his struggle. I'm not sure we always realize when we gather what is going on in heavenly places. That God is using the church to educate angels and to illustrate his glory. And so a little later in the same chapter, Paul says, with God's power working in us, God can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all time, forever and ever. So, what's happening then in Jerusalem may seem very small. It didn't make headlines in Rome. But what might have seemed very small was in fact the unleashing of God's very big intention. From before the beginning of time. And what God started intentionally. Started functioning intentionally. Because the unleashed church stresses intendance. And I just made up a word. So that you will remember the principle. Because when I read that text about the very first church. What stood out to me most, the single thing I noticed, was their single-mindedness. The very first words ever written about a real church were these. They devoted themselves. Other translations say they continued steadfastly. They spent their time. They committed themselves. They intentionally intended to keep certain commitments. I study churches. I've given my life to churches. And here's the constant I have noticed about healthy churches. It's not doctrine. Churches can be charismatic or not. They can be Arminian or Calvinist. It's not uh, whether they're high church or low church. It's not whether they meet in houses or meet in cathedrals. The one constant in healthy churches is their constancy. They practice a steadfast fidelity to certain practices. And I want to share with you what three of those practices in the first church were. One was a, they were consistent in their spiritual disciplines. They stressed intendance. When it came, for example, to being in the Word, to getting together, to receive teaching about the way of Jesus. This was a priority to them. They devoted themselves to it. They devoted themselves to sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And when Luke says breaking bread, that's what he's talking about. And they didn't just do it once a week, but they got all during the week when they met, they would do it. They committed themselves to consistent prayer. 
Prayer is mentioned 48 times in the book of Acts. They were consistent in the way they shared their monies and they sacrificed and they were generous. And notice, they didn't do this in response to a command. Nobody said, thou shalt. But this was simply the response of new creatures living the life of Jesus in the fluence of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I've learned. It's amazing how much more I am led by the Holy Spirit. I feel the impression of the Holy Spirit. I feel the encouragement of the Holy Spirit when I commit to the practices that Christians have committed to for centuries to stay in relation to God. For example, I'm loving our one million chapter challenge. I am reading the word of God more than I have ever read it and I can't get enough. So, a couple of weeks ago, I got a correspondence and it was unkind. And it was uncalled for. And I thought, I'm going to wait a day to respond to this. And of course, you know how righteous indignation can well up, right? So I get up the next morning about 5.30 and I'm reading through the Psalms. And here's the first verse I read. I decided to guard my way so that I would not sin with my tongue. So I turned to a different translation. I read that verse in nine different translations and none of them would let me off the hook. But here's what I love. I love living in the flow of the Spirit where that kind of prompting and leading when you need it happens. And here's what I've learned. That I experience that kind of leading and help from the Holy Spirit when I am committed to the kind of practices that make me more aware of His presence. And did you notice... That their intending included a lot of attending. Okay. Now what I'm about to say could come off as a rant and I don't want it to. And if I step on your toes, please know I'm trying to be gentle. So I'm going to start with a dumb joke. So these three pastors are having lunch and they're all talking about they've got problems with squirrels in the attic of their sanctuaries. And the first pastor says, yeah, I set traps, caught the squirrels, let them loose. They're back in the attic. Second pastor says, I have tried noise. I have tried sprays. I even hired an exterminator, but I can't get rid of the squirrels. Third pastor says, we used to have that problem, but we don't anymore. What'd you do? Well, I baptized all those squirrels and made them members of my church. Haven't seen them since. (laughs) Now, if you read the blogs, there's a lot of attention to the decline of the church in America. But more and more we're beginning to realize it's not so much the number of people that go to church that's in decline, it's how often they go. For example, you have a thousand people as the members of a church. If they go three out of four weekends, their average attendance is 750, right? If they go two out of four weekends, the average attendance is 500. And everyone says, see, the church is in decline. No, it has as many people as it ever did. They just don't go as much. And what's happened is we've now in a culture where, you know, we're sick, we have vacation, there's the weekends, we just want to get away and go to the lake, there's the weekend, we just stayed up late and we're tired, and the kids have soccer, and 
We think we're much more committed to the church than we actually are. And all you have to do to know this is true is let it rain on a Sunday morning. And the rain that will not keep us from work, it will not keep us from that concert we bought tickets to, it will not keep us from our kids' sporting events, will keep us home. And so recently I saw a study of children of families that consider themselves active church members. And here's what they found out. Between vacation and being sick and kids' sports, the average child actually only goes to church 1.4 times a month. Which means the average child is spending more hours a week on video games than he is a year in church. Again, not trying to make anyone feel guilty. But I do want to ask you a question. If what we're doing right now wasn't important, if hearing preaching and teaching, if taking communion together, if worshiping God, if seeing each other, if it wasn't important, why is Satan trying to outlaw it in every country where he can? Why is he trying to kick churches out of schools? Look at this verse with me from Luke 4. This is Jesus. It says, On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as he always did. Jesus was devoted to regular, consistent worship with other people. We can't stay spiritually fit if we are spiritually undisciplined. And it doesn't just help our fitness, it helps our witness. Because another thing about an unleashed church, it is persistent about making more disciples. And so this first church didn't have a mission so much as Jesus' mission had this church. It says in verse 47, they praised God and they demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. And you see in the book of Acts a lot of growth statements for the church. A little later, over 5,000 men have now become Christians. A little later, and the number of disciples increased rapidly. A little later, Paul comes back from a mission trip and says, Let me tell you about all the people who became Christians on my mission trip. And they say, Well, let us tell you about all the people that came Christians here in Jerusalem while you were gone. And they weren't afraid to talk about growth because they understood every metaphor Jesus used for the kingdom was a growth metaphor. The kingdom's like a seed that becomes a big tree. The kingdom's like a field that becomes a big harvest. In heaven, they rejoice when just one lost sheep gets found. Jesus said the kingdom's like a man who threw a banquet and sent out invitations. The people said, I'm too busy. So he said to his servants, you go to the highways and the byways and you compel them to come in. So that my house will be full. And an unleashed church wants a full house. Now, what does that mean? Well, it meant for the first church, they had to constantly make adjustments and they had to make sacrifices to make room for more. So your name is Judah and a bunch of Christians are meeting in your house. But the Lord keeps adding daily. And so your house is getting too full. So Judah says to Levi, Levi, next week you take half these people and you start meeting in your house. 
And Levi says, I will. But Simeon, as soon as my house gets full, you've got to start taking some people and meet in your house. And the church is doing whatever the church needs to do to make room for more. It's my opinion that many churches today are leashed because the preferences of the found are trumping a burden for the lost. And nobody says they're against church growth. They just don't like it when more people come. Because more people changes what we're used to. And so it's like the family, the mother and the father and the two kids, and they have a three-bedroom house, and everyone's got their own space. And the mom and dad say to the kids, we're thinking of adopting and adding children to the family. And the two kids say, that's awesome, but I'm not sharing my room. Did you know there were only 20 lifeboats on the Titanic? Way too few, but even more tragic. Almost all those lifeboats that were found were only half full. Because the people already in the boat were afraid what would happen to them if they went back to get more. We've got to make room for more. That's why we're adding another service. It's going to be a sacrifice. We're going to change our schedule. It's not going to be easy for any of us. It's not going to be easy for me. But an unleashed church cannot let go of this burden. There are more that need Jesus. God wants more children. And so he's looking for families that will make room for them. And that's one reason why I try not to be critical of growing churches. That's another thing that I think is tragic. It's easy in any city to find the most criticized church. It'll be the one that's growing the most. doesn't matter whether it's uh, in a cathedral or if it's a house church. It doesn't matter. If it's growing, it'll get criticized. I remember the evangelist Dwight L. Moody was approached one time by a lady who said, I don't like the way you bring people to Christ. And Moody said, I don't like the way I do it either. How do you do it? (laughs) And she says, well, I don't do it. And Moody said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. And you've got to ask yourself, when you read in the Bible that the Lord was adding daily to the church those that were getting saved, was that an exception or an example? Was that just the way it used to be? Or is that how it ought to be? And then finally... An unleashed church is insistent that discipleship is a team sport. God saves everyone individually, but he doesn't save anyone independently. And so here is the very first record of a church. This thing that God has planned from eternity. This thing that has always been what God intended. The very first. First description of the church, and not one single person is named. Not one single individual is highlighted. Every noun and every pronoun is plural. To remind us that the church must always resist and rebuke the spirit of consumerism. 
and individualism that dominates cultures like ours. You hear it in language like, well, we're just church shopping. Or, I didn't get anything out of that service. Imagine a parent saying to his family, I'm sorry, I just don't get anything out of being in this family anymore. I'm going to go to another family. And the sad truth is, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Even the music we sing, as much as I love it, I asked Ryan this week, find a song that we can sing after my sermon that uses plural pronouns, that talks about us and we, and not just me and I. And let me tell you, there's not many songs written like that. It says they were devoted to fellowship. That all the believers were together. They were in their homes. It says they ate together. This was a we movement, not a me movement. And so this might be the most important thing I say. The church is not a place you go to. It is a people you belong to. What does the New Testament tell us to do to become more like Jesus? All by ourselves. Did you know there are over 30 commands in your Bible you cannot obey if you don't have a faith community? And that's one reason why we think small groups are so important, because you need a real community, not just a place where a whole bunch of strangers get together. You see, the first Christians didn't just meet with one another. They met to one another, one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to mourn with one another, to bear one another's burdens. Why do you think David came today? It's not because it's his job. It's not because he was told he had to be here. It's because church does people better than any place in the world. And when it does, the witness is winsome and awesome. It says they praised God and they were liked by all the people. Now the world will not always like what we stand for as a church. They may not approve of all of our doctrines, but they should never disapprove of the way we treat persons. When the world looks at the church, they should have to acknowledge that is a place of love. That place is a family. That is a community of joy. (laughs) With all her flaws, there is nothing more beautiful than the body of Christ. And I remind you, That when the Lord Jesus comes back, and He is coming back, He's coming for one thing. He's coming for His bride. He's coming for His church.
And we should be devoted to helping her unleash her full potential. So here's two takeaways, two simple things that we can all do. Here, number one, just intend to attend. We can all decide, I'm going to be more committed to consistent participation in the life of my church. I have a memory that still blesses me to this day. My brother and I were young. We lived in Oak Cliff in South Dallas. We were on a peewee football team. We practiced on Monday and Wednesday and Friday afternoons, and we had game on Saturday. My mother and father, after being separated for a year, put their marriage back together, and one of the decisions they made was church is going to be a priority. So every Wednesday, Dad pulled up in the station wagon. He called out to me and my brother, and we left practice in front of all the team, in front of all the coaches. We walked off that field. We got in the back of the station wagon. We took our shoulder pads and our sweaty stuff off, and we put on some clothes, and we went to church. And I'm telling you, that had a huge impact on a little boy. Because my mother and father were saying, you can have your hobbies, you can have your sports. But in this home, church as a family is first. And so be at church. Get in a small group and attend when the small group meets. Are your high schoolers and teenagers in a D group? Then be there when the D group meets. And one more thing. Don't just intend to attend, but attend to intend. There's a verse in the Bible that says, Don't forsake assembling together, but for a reason. There is a reason God wants us to come together regularly, because we could worship and pray and read our Bible by ourselves. Here's the reason. Hebrews 10, the rest of the verse says, Think of ways to encourage one another. Do you want to receive a blessing when you come together in your church? I'll tell you how. Decide before you come to be a blessing. Bring a blessing. Pray to God and say, Lord, I'm available. Who needs a hug today? What new person who's nervous needs a new friend? Somebody I can pray with today, God? Somebody I can just encourage? And if you decide that when you come, you are going to be a blessing, I promise you will receive a blessing. I have a pastor friend who has in his church a sweet older couple. They've been there for years. But now she has Alzheimer's. And so this old man is her primary caregiver. And 24-7, he takes care of the love of his life who does not know who he is anymore. Except Sunday mornings. And he makes plans for someone to come. And he goes to be with his church. And my pastor friend said to him, maybe this is hard for you. If you want to just stay home, we we could bring some people by. We could bring you communion. We could bring you a CD of the sermon. He said, oh, please don't do that. I need to come to my church. And he said a line I'll never forget. I need 
to shake some Christian hands. We all do. So, we're going to put this sermon into practice. Everybody stand up. And for the next 90 seconds, I want you to bless somebody. Hug them, pray with them, shake a Christian hand. For the next 90 seconds, be the church. <laughs>